us as we study this chapter and the psalm. And we ask you just to guide and lead all that we see and do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Psalm 96. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are hidden in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say unto the heathen that the Lord reigns. The, the world also shall be established and it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. Before the Lord, for he comes and he comes to judge the earth and he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. So this is a very up, upbeat, positive psalm that we're looking at today. It starts out, O sing unto the Lord a new song, sing unto the Lord all the earth. And the word here for new, it really means fresh. Sing unto the Lord a new, fresh song. So this, sing unto the Lord a new, fresh song. Are the Lord's mercies new and fresh every day to us? And this is something that's very important. I have, I, every once in a while, I will meet somebody who seems to be living on something that's 30 years old. You know, that they're, everything about God is from way back. You know, they're not, God's not doing anything new. They're not finding anything new in his word. And you talk to them and it's like, what's God doing today? What, what did he do yesterday? What has he do, done in the last week? And even that's old when you really want to think about it. it you know, how much of us want to eat our food that's a week old? And, you know, with refrigeration, we can get away with it nowadays. <laughs> but usually we want fresh food each day. We want food that is new. It builds upon it. It changes it. it it's, it's fresh. It's new. And this is why I encourage us to be reading the Bible each, each day, because it's new. And I've shared with you how many times, and I know many of you have shared the same thing. How many times have you, you know you've read the chapter before, and you read it, and it's like, when did this verse get added? I've never seen it before. And it's simply, it's simply something that's fresh and new and being developed for us. And God is saying, I... I have new and fresh information for you. I have new lessons for you. And he's asking us for that new song, that new melody, the new feeding and food. We're told to sing a new song, get fresh, fresh feeding. And this is why I write lots of notes in my Bible, but I don't pay a lot of attention to those notes if I'm rereading something because it's, it's old new fresh food not because he's changed his word but because i've grown to a different level and all of a sudden i need new food and it's the same thing when we think about even our physical growth we start a baby on milk and that is what they get fed and it's all that they can handle and then eventually we give them cereal you know barely 
you know, usually milk with a little bit of, of cereal in it to thicken it up and make it, make it a little thicker. Then we start giving them potatoes or vegetables or, or you know, heavier cereal. But we keep adding to this and eventually that child is eating meat and potatoes and, and the stuff that takes a while to digest and takes some work in, in digesting. And for us in a spiritual world, that's the same thing that happens. Peter says it's time for you to move past milk and get onto real food. How many Christians are still drinking the milk of the word 50, 60 years after they've been, been a Christian, supposedly, and it's like, uh, come on, you know, start feeding yourself. You don't, you don't need somebody to be giving you your food all the time. You should be able to feed yourself from the word. The, the important thing about this is, is God wants us to be growing. We'll never outgrow the need to be taught a little bit and have some, some of the food chewed up for us and you know, given out to us. But there has to come a point in time when we look at the word of God and we're feeding ourselves some deep, deeper truths. And that's when it gets to be fun to share with others and say, hey, look what I saw this week. This is what God showed to me. And you know what? When you first start learning it, Anything you learn is, is hard, hard to you. It's, it's the meat to you until you grow a little bit more. And then you look back and say, oh, that was, that was some, some potatoes or vegetables. That wasn't even meat. And then you're, then you're dealing with something you think is meat at the time. And you realize it was uh, celery instead of, <laughs> instead of meat because it was chewy and, and everything. But you keep growing and growing and growing. And, and you start learning and saying, this is important. And then I don't know how many of you have found this as you've started reading the Bible through over and over. But all of a sudden, I have a hard time just reading the Bible because I start thinking about, oh, this was mentioned over here, and I start flipping back, and I start going the other direction. I'm just trying to get two chapters done, and I'm going, oh, hold it, yeah, this is... And, I, and I'm bouncing all over the place, and I'm going, no, I'm supposed to just be reading right now. But you start understanding more because it, God is tying the word together. For a book that's written over the hundred... Uh, 1,400 years by 40 authors, it is, a, it is a book that is totally linked together. And we can pull and link it together in so many ways that is wonderful. In verse 2, he says, Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. So he says, Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Make holy or make sacred his name. Is God's name sacred to you? Now, this is something that he put into the commandments, that you are not to use the name of the Lord God in vain. And that doesn't just mean using it as a cuss word, and we've talked about that before. It means using it empty. Our, our teenagers now are constantly using God's name in, in, uh, in vain, and that's exactly where I was going, this whole OMG thing. You know, oh my God is what they're saying all the time. And they don't, they're not, in, they're not bringing God into the situation at all. They are just using his name lightly and in vain. But how many times do have maybe even Christians done this? You know, you know, you know, going along and say, oh God, you know, you're not, you're not even starting a prayer. You're just using his name lightly. And we have to be very careful about this, that, his name is to be holy. His name is to be sacred. If we're going to put his name on anything, it means that we're calling in 
his name. And remember what we've talked about name. Name is everything that is the reputation behind that name. And this is very important. Companies guard the reputation of their name very carefully, which is why they copyright their names and, and register their names so that you can't just attach it to any advertising that you want that they may or may not be interested in. You know, they guard their name. Awesome. Yeah. And she wanted to find out how, I don't know use it that much, mm -hmm. but awesome to me is God. And it should be. And, and how awesome is that word? Or how awesome is that? And that word is used all the time by teens in this day. Everything is awesome. awesome. Yeah. I mean, our, our young people have very few adjectives in their, in their vocabulary. Everything is awesome. Uh, and or the F-bomb is dropped, you know, and then, you know, they use, they use that as their, as their primary adjective anymore, and uh, they have no clue, number one, what the word means, much or, less. I say sometimes, I'll say how awesome God made the mountains. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yes. Because that's, I wonder. And we need to develop, God is asking us to praise him, and, you know, he would like to have more adjectives attached to him, too, as well as, you know, yeah. just you know, just awesome and everything, or holy. You know, he wants to know: Do we love him? Is he's majestic? That he's love, lovely. When I see something like that's not right, now it doesn't make me mad for people correct me. But when I first heard coming to church, I used to say, "Oh my God!" I mean, quite a bit. And the pastor called me in the office one day, and he said. <laughs> and he said, that's just what I want to talk to you about. <laughs> and, I, you know, and he said, uh, I know you don't realize what you're saying. You and he, he explained to me, you know, and I didn't. I really did not understand mm -hmm. using that word how bad it was. Yeah. But that is true for all of us. You know, how many times do we think the way the world thinks? I've shared with you one of I hate jokes about marriage. I really don't like it when when people will say, Well, I've got to go home to the ball and chain or the or the battle axe. And it's like I look at these people and I go, I thought you loved your wife. Well, I do. Well, how could you use such derogatory names for that person? You know, the person that you love, that, you, that you're wanting to give your life to. Uh, when, when we share, you know, because you know, Lynn and I have been married for the over 30, 35 years now. <laughs> Not over 35, but 35 years. You know, when you share that with somebody and they go, oh, that's a long time. And I'm like, as far as I'm concerned, we're just getting started. I'm comparing myself to the people with, that are 50, 60, 70 years married because I've been in Christian churches so long that people got married to stay married and to me we're just started we're only halfway to where I want where these people want you know, or, I don't know and I'm hoping that we go that long and well over and longer if we live that long you know it's you know but it was a couple that came 
Yeah. And that is a precious thing because the Christian attitude toward marriage is you're staying together forever. And if that's your attitude about it, then 20 years, I mean, people used to tell us even at, you know, say when we were at 10 years, oh, wow, that's a really long time, you know, and that was when I was in the workplace with the people, with the rest of the world, and the world, you know, figures if you go past five years, you've been married for a long time, and, but again, how many times do we put the world's way of thinking into our life rather than God's way of thinking? Plus, they say married nowadays, people aren't getting married. Yeah, this is true, too. But we need to keep this in mind. And as we get into his word and we start learning his word, we start changing the way we think and we start becoming more biblical-centered mm-hmm. in our th- thinking. And the more we become biblical-centered or, or Christian worldview, whatever term you want to use, the better off we get in the long run because we're starting to say this is how God sees this and when we start agreeing with God we're going to change our life to match how he sees things marriage is one of those areas that that has been a real strong thing we get into the whole idea of creationism and and evolution and this is a real strong thing that we as as adults need to be working with our nieces and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and all this because they are bombarded with the evolution garbage all the time. And we need to be aware of this because it starts with the shows they watch on TV just slipping in these little things about millions of years and, and, and long time ago, you know, long, long time ago. And the whole thing with even homosexuality is being introduced at the very level of the kids' TV shows anymore. And they're, being gro- they're growing up thinking these things are normal because that's how they're presented. And the church is not doing a real good job with the kids counteracting all of this stuff and saying, this is what God says. And that falls on every member of the, of the church, you know, not dealing with this with their own, their own families and, their own, and the children in their families. And it's hard for some of us that are older to even think about this being the case because we grew, many grew up in a time when Evolution was, was something you didn't get taught in school, and you got taught Christianity, and every, everything was about Christian living, but it is not true in this day and age. Everything is actively against Christian beliefs, and you'd be surprised if you start talking to your kids about, you know, your grandkids and great-grandkids and nieces and nephews, and you start talking to them about this. I was talking to a gentleman here who's an associate pastor in the association, and we got talking about uh, dinosaurs, and he goes, where, dino- where, do, where do dinosaurs go fit in? I'm going, they were created on day five and six, depending on whether they were flying, swimming, or, or land. land. And by the way, the Bible is full of descriptions of dinosaurs, and they were called dragons at the time. And he goes, what? He'd never heard any of this, and he's an associate pastor. Okay, it is a lot of people out there that are confused. When it comes to dinosaurs, millions of years ago, or they get into the gap theory. Millions of years ago, before God started everything, these dinosaurs lived, and that's why we have them in the fossil record. No, death did not exist before Adam's fall, so therefore there is no gap that dinosaurs can live in. Dinosaurs had to live in our time period with Adam and Eve into the flood, past the flood, 
and they were called dragons, and there's all kinds of tales of dragons being killed. Now they're, they're moved into the mythological side, but they're, they have their roots in there. Now, in China, they have records of having paid dragon keepers <laughs> in the, by the emperor. Now, I'm sure the emperor didn't, didn't pay somebody to, to go babysit mythological creatures. And after the flood, that's exactly what they would have been doing, too. Uh, you've got George and this dragon. I believe that he actually fought a dinosaur and it got put into mythological. Evolution is, evolution is taught as scientific and it's not scientific as we've talked about before. It's philosophical. Nobody can prove creation. Nobody can prove evolution. We can look at, we all look at the same facts and I will tell you having looked at the facts, the facts match up to the biblical record a whole lot better than they do to to what evolutionists want you to believe, but can you prove it scientifically? Absolutely not. Because science is the, you create an, a hypothesis. There's actually a movie out by Ray Comfort who does the, and the title of the movie is uh, Evolution vs. God, Your Faith Will Be Destroyed. When I first saw that title, I'm going, what the heck is this? And what it was talking about is your faith in evolution will be destroyed. Evolution has more faith in it than Christianity does. And we're accused of being faith because they would go to these evolutionists and they'd go, okay, give me one example of macroevolution. And they would give them microevolution, which microevolution is adapt adaptation within a species. Point to, well, we've got these bacteria that get evolve and no longer can be killed by the antibiotics that would normally kill them. Well, okay, fine, but what did they become? They were bacteria when they started. They're bacteria when they, when they got done. So the question is, give me one example of something that changed from what it was to, what, to something new. As, for example, a cat giving birth to rats. You know, it just it isn't going to happen. And they laugh at you when you say that, but, they, but you look at them and say, the evolution will always laugh at you when you ask them that kind of an example. Show me an example where something gives birth to something that it isn't. And they'll laugh at you and go, but that's what you're saying. You're saying that it must happen, but you laugh at us when we ask you to show an example of such that. And most of the students, because they were interviewing students, they were going, well, there must be an example. I don't know one, but there must be because my professors and my books all tell me that it's happened, but they never show them an example and it kind of shakes them up when they start thinking about this, that they've never been told a concrete example of speciation. And everybody will laugh at you if you ask them for one. And this is what evolution's all about. The evolutionist believes that someday a cat will give birth to a dog or a mouse or, a, or even a fish. They don't care what it gives, you know, it's gonna give you a birth to something else. And yet they'll laugh at you when you point out to them that they can't show you an example of that because it shakes their faith. They have extreme faith. I wrote a book that says I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. They, atheists have to have a huge amount of faith that everything just started by accident and just somehow started from nothing. And then life started from no life, which we already know can't happen. If you're an atheist or an evolutionist, you are violating every scientific rule and law out there to be an evolutionist. And they want to claim that they're on the side of science. It makes no sense. If you're going to be uh, on the side of science, you have to have something that's beyond science 
and beyond nature in the supernatural realm, and that would be God. Doesn't necessarily prove our God of Christianity, but it definitely proves you have to have something that started everything. And our God is the only one that makes sense when you get into the beginnings and, uh, of all the other different religions, and we're not going to go into that today, but our, our Bible gives us a solid foundation. God spoke it into existence and said, now we're going to let it run. He put the laws in place. And we see how the flood fits the fossilization of everything and puts fossils on the top of mountains because it flooded the entire world. Apologetics is starting to be really pushed in a lot of good churches. This is why I've shared with us, you know, most of the people in this room came from a generation where you believed it because it was in the Bible and you knew that God existed and you never questioned it. In my generation and later, <laughs> we were taught question authority and you started questioning everything. When that generation came to the church and started questioning, how do you know there's a God? Most of the people who had been just believing that God is there because that's what they were taught and they never questioned it themselves, kind of gone, oh, how, can you not, how can you ask that question? And the church very quickly taught these young people, don't question the dogma of the church, but get out of it as soon as possible because they don't have answers. And the sad thing is that we have answers and we have good answers, but because they asked them of people who had never analyzed what they believed, they would end up being shocked. Like, And then they basically taught them, don't ask questions in church because they're not going to like it when you do. And then we lost a large generation of people that were questioning authority and questioning, why should I believe in the Bible? Why should I believe that the Bible is God's word? And by the way, why should I even believe there is a God? When we didn't have answers for them in the church, many of them left the church because they're going, well, they're just a bunch of people who don't, don't know what they're doing. Just They're believing stuff because they were told to believe it. And it was a generation that was saying, we're not going to believe anything because we're told, told to believe it. And now we're starting to get back. But we're way behind the curve now. We're starting to finally realize there's answers for this and we need to give these answers to people. I went through the same question when I was in, in high school that Lynn's students were asking her, how do you deal with this? Except I had armed myself. I, I made my poor science teachers who weren't very, they were just going by what the book said and I would come in and saying, you just taught this, this article in such and such magazine dated such and such and such and such from, from scientific journals said that that's fake and a phony and you just said it was, was fact. And I'd be quoting scientific journals and they're going, uh. So they did not know what to do because the journals themselves said the stuff was fake. It kind of just blew their minds that what they, were, what they had been taught, what they were teaching on faith, that the, that the books were right and that their professors had been right. And then they have somebody come in and hit them with facts. And they're going, uh, I don't have an answer. Nobody's challenged them before. Nobody. And this is why apologetics is so important. Peter said, be ready to give an answer for what you believe. And we need to be able to give that answer to people. The Sunday school class this morning had a wonderful video on it about this guy defending and telling us why we know the 27 books of the New Testament are the right books and that they were written very soon after Jesus was born. They were already being quoted in the first century by all of the early church fathers, Polycarp and, the, all, the, and, and all of those guys, they'd all, they quoted from every book in the New Testament. 
and certain ones didn't quote from every book as he had brought out. We have enough of their quotes to, to make most of the New Testament up, and we're talking about before 200 A.D., and now we have all these people saying, well, what about all these other Gospels that they did not bring in? Well, all those other Gospels were written in 350, 400, 500 A.D. They were so far away from the birth of Jesus, the time of Jesus, that they are irrelevant for being Gospels. It wasn't the church had this big plan to get rid of them and not consider them. They weren't even written when the, when the church decided what the canon of scripture was. There's a whole, there's a whole list of them. There's about, there is about 70 or 80 of them, not hundreds like a lot of people, but there is about 70, 80 that, and every one of those particular false gospels are Gnostic gospels. And Gnostic means that you can have, you get knowledge through special revelation, you go into a trance or the spirits talk, talk to you and you can have these special revelations that either you get directly from the spirits, which are not God's spirit, or you get them taught to you by somebody who has had special revelation given to them. And Gnostics, Gnostic Christianity has been around since, since right after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Most of the, a lot of the epistles were written against Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that the physical was bad, spiritual was good. And this is where you get this whole, the Catholic movement went into this for a long time, where they would do self-flagellation to beat the flesh into submission so that the spirit would come, come out and you tried to, to hurt yourself physically so that you would be focused on the spiritual. That's part of the Gnostic world, that your special knowledge comes through the spirit and the flesh is evil. And we see this, and that First John is all, all about teaching against Gnostic Christianity. Gnostic Christianity is making a very strong comeback in a lot of liberal churches now, because it's all about knowledge and special knowledge. And if you just listen to the spirits and you get taught by the right people, we can give you the special knowledge that's not written in the word, but, but you've got to have this deep, you know, supernatural knowledge of what, what God's going to teach you. We do need to understand that this is, the, this is the gospel, this is the word. I believe that it's complete, but by the same token, a lot of things can be extrapolated and brought out. I mean, this is, we, otherwise there'd be a, a waste of time trying to teach. You know, if, if you can't teach <laughs> and come up with the application on it, there's going to be a problem. But you want to be careful that we don't add to the word. We don't want to subtract from the word. And we see it so often in today's world. A lot of these mega churches that are out there, not all of them, but many of them have subtracted sin from God's word. Because if they spoke about sin, people would walk away from their church. And you wouldn't have 30,000 people in your church because you know, you'd be talking about sin and that, and that drives people away. And a lot of the, a lot of the evangelists on radio and television do the same thing. They, they weaken what's out there because they want the crowd that comes with them when they weaken it. But they had a large crowd and they got paid well, they got paid well for their large crowd. This is the sad thing out there. And this is why there's a huge gap in the, in the Christian church in this age. We've got those that are following God's word and saying, we're not going to compromise his word. 
And then there's a lot of them that compromise God's word. And they're going to be the ones that make, us, make it difficult for us as we get deeper and deeper into the end times. And, and people say, well, what about that church over there? They have no problem with homosexuals and fornicators and adulterers. And, you know, they don't get uptight when you, when you cuss using God's name. They don't get uptight when you're with thieves and all of this. Unfortunately, they're true. There's churches out there that have no problem with not, not following, following God's God. word. I would say they're not Christian. But because they put Christian on their title and, and they're in the denominations that say they're Christian, they're going to be ones that make life difficult for us who follow God's word. And they go, well, they don't have any problems, so what's wrong with you? You're following that old ancient book that is full of myths. And that's the kind of words they use. An ancient book full of myths. Now, how can you be following that book that doesn't mean anything in today's society? Mostly because they've never, they've never read it. It's amazing. And if you come across somebody who challenges you on how can you follow a book that's full of all these information, ask them to read it. Ask them if they've ever read it, and they're, and they're going to be honest and tell you no. What happens in these colleges that is they have not been told why things are true, in most cases, and they get a professor who gives them a lot of strong, quote unquote, strong evidences because he doesn't, he or she doesn't get challenged by, by somebody knowing what's going on. This is something we have to be careful. We showed uh, God's Not Dead, you know, two years ago on the Friday night movies, and I highly recommend that because that is something that goes on in schools all the time. I watched on Netflix just the other day a movie called A Matter of Faith. And it has a great movie that brought the same point out. And I loved it at the end because the, the guy who defended Christian, uh, at creation, he goes, we can debate this all night long. He goes, We're not gonna, we all have the same facts and it is, you can't prove it scientifically. scientifically. It is a matter of philosophy. And it was a wonderful statement because it's something I've always taught long before I ever saw that movie because it is philosophy. Creationism and evolution are a philosophical argument. It is not science. Do not ever let somebody, when you're talking about the difference of creationism and evolution, try to frame it as science because it is not science. It is philosophy. It is what do you choose to believe? It is not scientific, even though it's taught as science in school, and this is the problem. It's taught as science in school, and it is not science. And it's got to be taken out of the science realm and be understood that it is philosophy, and not even worry about creation or, or evolution. Just teach science in our schools. You have to be able to test it. You have to put a hypothesis and test it. Now, how do you test the beginning of life when we already have life? You can't. And they're trying to show us that scientists have put the chemicals together and, and been able to form amino acids. What have they proven? That with enough brain power and enough mixing of the chemicals and putting them under the right condition, you can, perform some, you can make something that is part of life but is not life. It still took intelligence to make the amino acids. They haven't shown that it can happen, happen accidentally. They ha you know, they've just shown that given the right intelligence, we can make an amino acid. 
Well, an amino acid's a long ways from life. The argument for creationism and evolution is a philosophical argument. And if you're talking, if somebody, it's, it's not a scientific argument, and it never has been. If you bring science into the, the area of evolution, it falls apart. It's taught as science, it's presented as science, it is not science. We have the same thing in, right here in Arizona, we have a national park which has some petroglyphs. And the petroglyphs are of Indians performing hunting rituals. And they'll go, this is them hunting a buffalo, this is them here hunting an elk, this is them hunting uh, a deer. We don't know what they're hunting here. It's, it's a character and it looks like a brontosaurus, but they can't say it's a brontosaurus because man didn't live with dinosaurs, even though the Indians very clearly drew a brontosaurus and them hunting it. But because it breaks what they believe, they go, it obviously can't be a dinosaur because dinosaurs didn't live at that time, so they couldn't have drawn a dinosaur, hunting a dinosaur. So they go, we have no idea what this was. It's, this is very clearly a buffalo, an elk, and a deer, but this one they all of a sudden forgot how to draw. But the Indians have also drawn all these pictures of what they call thunderbirds, and when you look at them, they're pterodactyls. Okay? But they'll never admit that they're a pterodactyl because pterodactyls didn't exist during the time of human beings because they're dinosaurs. Well, they're everywhere. They're everywhere on the southwest. So it's very clear the pterodactyls were here during the Indian times, and because they call them thunderbirds, they probably made a very loud noise, which would fit that huge cavity in, the back, in, their, in, their, in their skull, which would have been a resonator that made a very loud, loud large roar out of that cavity. It fits into our description, it fits into the, it, the fossils, and their title fits in, okay? But they can't call them pterodactyls because pterodactyls are dinosaurs and they didn't live with men. This is where the philosophy gets to be a big problem when you start saying, because this can't happen, it can't be, even though it obviously is. We know that life doesn't start from non-life, and yet if you're an evolutionist, you believe that life starts from non-life even though all the science proves that it doesn't. I love Ken Ham. He picks up a rock in one in the middle of, of his messages and he wants, he goes, I want to introduce you to great, 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 great. He goes on for about five minutes, grandpa, as he's holding up a rock. Why does he do that? Because what does evolution say? We started out with this great big rock. Somehow rain started falling on this rock. And it washed the minerals off this rock into this pool. And somehow out of that pool of minerals that have been washed off the rock, somehow formed amino acids and then formed life. And life crawled out of the rock. Unfortunately, the, the new teaching is that aliens planted a life on the planet and then left us. And the sad thing about that is, those who are like myself that like science fiction, have had that fed to us quite often. I mean, I, I know that it's just fake because I believe in God, but Star Trek talked about it. A bunch of other evolution, uh, uh, other science fiction books talk about man planting life on other planets so that we don't go, that we don't become extinct, you know, so terraforming planets. When I first heard a professor in college, the idea that life was planted on this planet, I thought that the professor was joking.
this has got to be the biggest joke I've ever heard. When is he going to get to the punchline? About halfway through the class, I started realizing he is serious about this. That life was started by aliens coming to this planet and dropping life off and it evolved from the life that was dropped off on this planet. This is the question that comes down. You know, what they're trying to do is get from this world where we have laws that say life cannot start to maybe there's a planet out there that operates on different laws and, and life could start from nothing on some planet out there somewhere in the universe. And when you start getting that kind of mentality, uh, yes, I guess there could be, if you really want to try to believe that, you know, maybe there's a planet out there where the laws are different. I don't understand why, because the laws, are, laws of science are supposed to be universal and scientific, and if they're not you know, that, then we have, we've been pinning ourselves on the wrong, wrong teachings anyway. So, but all they're trying to do is push it off. They're trying to get more time somewhere else and create more time and more and change the rules. How do you argue with it? How do you argue with the fact that aliens came here and dropped life off? You know, you really can't because you can't prove it or disprove it. Again, you're back into philosophy. You're back into a philosophical argument. Okay, um, I'll grant there might be aliens somewhere in this universe that have came from a planet that had different laws, but boy, that's awfully hard to believe because science should be science. Okay, mathematics is mathematics, science is science, you know, it's, but see, their belief is that they come from some place that will have different scientific rules than we have here. Okay, they're ignoring the God issue altogether and trying to say there's some planet out there where the rules of Earth do not apply, and on that particular planet, life can spring from nothing. Even though we know that life always springs from life. It would not make any sense because if life could spring up on wherever it is, then that life should be able to start on itself here. This is, the bizarre thing is, we are accused of not being a thinking people because we believe what God says. But when you turn the tables on them and you start looking at what they believe, they have more, more faith than, it's, than it takes to believe that there's a supernatural being that started everything and is in control. Why do they have so much trouble with that? Because if there's a supernatural being who started everything and he has the right to give us rules, and he did, you have to obey those rules. So they cannot allow that there's a God out there that has rules that they have to obey. And the funny thing about this is, almost every one of the strong evolutionist, atheist evolutionists say the same thing. We know there's problems with what we're teaching, but we cannot accept that there's a God that has his rules for us to follow. Okay? And they say them in much fancier rule, you know, language because they're very smart and intelligent, but, but you read it and you read it carefully and that's exactly what they're saying. We know there's problems, we know there's issues, but we cannot accept that there's a God because there's rules. And this is the seriousness of it. This is why it's philosophical and not scientific. We know that most of this world and most of the things that we see are relatively young. Most of the stars do not have enough helium in them to be millions of years old because we know and understand the fusion rate of hydrogen. If our sun was millions and millions of years old, like they want us to believe, it should be 
much more helium in it than there is. And we know how much helium there is because spect you know, spectrographic analysis. It's amazing that we look at the sun and say the sun can't be millions of years old. It, you know, number one, if it was, it would have been a lot larger. To the point where life wouldn't have started on this planet. If this planet was even not inside the sun. <laughs> okay? Just because of the fusion rate for millions of years. We, we see all this stuff that they don't want to acknowledge. We look at radiometric dating. Radio, the the half-life of the radium of carbon, when they tell you that radiometric dating has dated it to millions of years, they are lying. If they tell you that a radiometric dating put it at 10,000 years, they are lying. The half-life is long gone. They're only guessing beyond, and it's only so accurate because they make an assumption that it has a certain amount of half-life in it of zero when it started, and that's not necessarily true. They make all these assumptions that aren't valid in their dating processes. When they come in and they try to show you the scientific evidence, they're lying. <laughs> okay, And this is the problem that they have in the first place. Nobody out there is looking at what they're doing, what is out there, and challenge what is out there. And basically, they taught, they, you know, they will, go, they will resort to name-calling when these students stand up. And the problem in college are most of the students are there 18, 19, 20 years old. And these professors are the ones that know everything. And if the professor says it, it must be true. Even though I can't find the evidence, it must be true because they're the ones that have the PhD. And one thing you'll learn as you talk to people is you're going to be called stupid. You're going to be called a fundamentalist. You're going to be called... Uh, unintelligent. How can anybody with half a brain not understand that evolution is true? Now you believe in that crazy myth of, of, of creationism and they try to belittle us because they have no arguments for it. They have no arguments so they engage in name calling and you can always tell if somebody's calling other people names it is because they have no foundation to discuss the issue with. And this is why almost every great apologist that has come into Christianity came in with the idea of coming in and crushing Christianity and proving that it is wrong. Lee Strobel did that. He's our newest one that's coming up to be an apologist. He was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune and he went in and applied all of his investigative skills because his wife had become a Christian and was telling him how how creationism is, was good and that there was a God and so he went in to prove that she didn't know what she was talking about because he was smarter than she was and he ended up becoming a Christian <laughs> Josh McDowell the, the great apologist in my growing up years he was challenged he was getting these crazy Christians in college that were telling him the Bible was true so he decided he was going to take a year off school and prove that Christianity and the, Bi the Bible wasn't true and, and, because, and, as, and because the Bible wasn't true, Christianity couldn't be true and became a Christian. Uh, you know, all through history, we've got these people who went in who wanted to show the Bible and Christianity is false. And what do they find out? It's true. 
Greenleaf, Greenleaf was, a, was a lawyer in the 1800s who was a master at evidentiary evidence for, for uh, law. And some of his Christian students, because he was a devout atheist and he cr constantly criticized Christianity, and they went to him and said, Professor Greenleaf, or Dr. Greenleaf, I don't remember what they said, would you take and use your evidentiary knowledge and look at the claims of the resurrection and, and prove to us that by evidentiary evidence that it was wrong, he became a Christian. And his book was based upon the, the eyewitnesses and the, and the testimony of the people, it is absolutely sure that Jesus rose from the dead. And once he admitted that, he had to then start looking at the rest of the scriptures and saying, uh, maybe they're true too. And he started applying the same logic to it. This has happened over and over and over again. So if you have somebody who is really challenging the Bible, ask them to really prove it. Go in and find the proof that it's wrong, not the hearsay. And I've shared this before. When somebody will come up to you and say, the Bible's full of contradictions. I have a standard answer. Show me one. I know the five that they'll come back with, and I know how to answer all five of them because they're not contradictions. I know when they go in and, and look around, they're going to find these. And if they just spent a little longer, they'd find the answers. But I can answer them for them. It doesn't bother me. Because they'll go to something like the kings and say, well, see, you take these, this list of kings and chronicles and kings and you, and you start adding up the dates and they don't match. I'm going, you know, that's a really good observation. I'm glad you thought about that. Let me explain why. And give them the fact that, number one, Israel and, and Judah dated things differently. One of them followed the more European way, which we're all familiar with. You're not one years old until you've lived one year. If you're in the Middle East or Asia, you're one year old from the moment you're born. And when you've lived a year, you're starting your second year. When we say you're one, they say you're two. That takes care of a number of their contradictions. Then you've got the fact that there have co-regencies. When a king would go to war, he would determine that his son was a king, and he would say, you're the designated king, and they would be co-regents for a period of time. So did you start, did you start did, were they quoting when he was a co-regent or were they quoting when he was by himself as regent? But, <laughs> but we look at this and say, challenge people. We don't have a God who is incapable of being challenged. This book is logical. His, the book is, stands the test of time. The Dead Sea Scrolls were one that helped answer a lot of their people's problems when they looked and said, well, this was obviously written after the fact, and the Dead Sea Scroll says, no, this was written 150 years before Jesus, you know, and it, it answered a whole lot of questions for people. And because they used to say that about Daniel. Daniel obviously was written after the, after the Greek civilization split up and Rome took over, and then we found portions of his book in the Dead Sea Scrolls and written into the Septuagint. So it's like, uh, no, these are all predating what you think has happened. It's God being given a revelation. The Bible stands up to scrutiny. It has no problems standing up. Where it talks about science, it's right. Where it talks about history, it's right. Is it a history book or a science book? No. But where it talks about those, it is absolutely right. And it holds up to scrutiny. Resurrection of Jesus 
is such powerfully testified to that even though we know that you don't rise, that people don't rise from the dead, we know that Jesus did. And it's amazing, yeah, the, you know, Paul telling them, you know, we've got 500 witnesses, you know, at a time when most of them were alive. Uh, and if you wanted to, you, didn't, you don't tell somebody to go check with the witnesses that they can actually go check. All they, you know, all they had to do was take a, take a two or three day trip to go there and, and verify these witnesses. This is the importance. And this is what really got Greenleaf when he was investigating this. He goes, 500 witnesses? <laughs> and he was thinking about in a court case, if I had 500 witnesses, <laughs> I'd win the case. And then all the other things that went along with as he looked into the, into the story. We do not have to be afraid of people questioning it. Challenging them to go look it up. Challenge them to check it out. Because most of them are just repeating what they've been told. There's lots of contradictions. And if you ask them, well, show me one. Well, I don't know. I just, I just know there's lots of them. How do you know? Well, I've been told. Find one. Get into the book and find them for me, and then we'll talk about your contradiction. Because it's important for us to be able to say, this is true. God is true. There's answers. We don't have to worry. And even if they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to, remember, I've already told you, that's the best thing that can happen to you. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I will go find the answer for you, and we'll get back together next week or tomorrow or you know, in a couple of days, let me, let me go find that answer for you and I'll give you a call. Lord, we just thank you for this. We thank you for this evening and, and your love and your care. We ask you to go with us as we go out and about and, and that we share with you. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.